Hey everyone, it's Alec, here to remind you to check the trigger warnings in the description of today's episode. And should you need a transcript, you can find that along with other goodies in the description down below. Have a safe listen. Mythale presents Circe's Episode 17, Picture Perfect Family. So, it's been a few days since I last sat down to record one of these. It seems Kyra has found some time to sort through some of them. I hope he also found the time to record a few, since I have been unable to fulfill my role. When I came in, a session had already been placed neatly on my desk, so I'm guessing this is Cairo's way of assigning me my next session. It seems this one is from the Criminally Insane Unit. It's a little bit outside of my expertise, but I am guessing that there must be a good reason Cairo left this one for me, judging by the insistent note he had put on it. The session in question is with Frank Magazine, written down on the 19th of March, 2018 regarding the events leading up to his family's demise. Case file 71685391818. Session recorded on the 30th of January, 2023, by Elias Emanuel Short, therapist in training at Sunshine Valley Mental Institution. I know it sounds bad. I am well aware of what was broadcasted on the news and how the media portrayed me in their colorful words, I wish there was a way I could tell them what really happened, but I know that trying to speak my truth was how I ended up in the ward for the criminally insane. It leaves me with no way to escape the horrible nightmares that haunt my slumbering hours and have made their way into my waking ones as well. I know I'm being punished for what I did to my beloved wife and our adoring daughter. At times, the smiling faces of the two girls I held dearest in my life will flash before my eyes like a morbid reminder, sending an acute sense of dread through me. I have decided that it's time to say my piece, for this voice of mine that spoke sweet words of love to my wife and daughter doesn't deserve to speak any longer after having broken the promise to protect them. I will honestly tell you that I have suffered no signs of mental illness throughout my childhood nor did I happen to experience any traumatic or life-changing events. It was first when I started at university back in 2003 that I first started to notice something wasn't quite right. I found myself having a hard time telling my peers apart. It was as if their faces always blended, and it made me unable to differentiate between my friends and teachers. I wasn't very keen on seeing a psychiatrist, but... When it became harder and harder to find out who had in fact told me what, and I had accidentally shared more than a few secrets without meaning to, I finally decided it was time to figure out if something was wrong with me. It didn't take long for my psychiatrist to give me my diagnosis. Prosopagnosia, 
or to put it into words everyone might understand, face blindness. It wasn't exactly the diagnosis anyone wanted, but it did explain a lot. It didn't take me long to sit my friends down and explain to them what had been shared with me during my diagnosis. They all took it well, and it was Frida who came up with the idea of everyone having a different colored bracelet. That way, I could look down at their wrist and see who exactly it was I was speaking to. They really went through such an effort to make me feel included. I still can't thank them enough for that. My face blindness didn't go through any real changes in the years that followed. It didn't get easier, but it also didn't exactly get harder. So I was just content with the state I had found myself in, not paying much mind to it, and as you have heard, it, it didn't hinder me from finding a beautiful woman to marry. I met her during my last year of university. She had just started herself, and what made me fall so deeply in love with her was how she never treated me differently, even with my face blindness. She was always so kind, only cracking the occasional joke about how I wouldn't know if she was beautiful today, for her face was like any other around me. She always had that geniusness about her. I had never met a woman who was so authentically herself. She was, with no uncertainty, the woman of my dreams. It only made her more appealing when she decided it had taken me too long to ask her out, so she took the matters into her own hands simply telling me that we had a date the upcoming Friday. I was supposed to pick her up at 19 and not be late. She didn't like to be kept waiting. Of course, I couldn't say no to that, and that date turned into more as the years passed by. We moved in together in 2008 after just a year of dating. We were euphoric. Just one and a half years later, we discovered that Evangeline was with child. It wasn't exactly planned, but since I was nearing my 30s and had a stable income, we decided to keep her. Evangeline gave birth to our lovely daughter on April 6, 2011. It hadn't taken us long to settle on a name. We had agreed on it the second we laid eyes upon her. Our daughter should be called Hope Magazine. That's what she was to us. A hope for the future to come. So at the age of 28... I had everything I could have ever asked for. The dream life with my picture-perfect family. I wish the young fool I was back in university could see me now and understand that just because I had been diagnosed, it wouldn't stop me from living the life I had set out to have. My daughter grew with each blessed day, becoming ever more perfect. However, I know that's not what you want to hear about. It wouldn't matter to you at what age Hope started waltzing around the living room on her own two feet, or when I finally did manage to ask Evangeline to marry me. No, all you want to hear is what occurred on the 1st of March, 2018. Fine. Have it your way. Analyze the most traumatic event in my life, pull it apart until you think you've made a semblance of sense out of it. It won't matter to me. What happened is irreversible, and if it gives you some morbid joy to read it, well, c'est la vie. It was supposed to be a good day. It looked like it was going to be. When the sun shone in through the kitchen windows as I drank my coffee, I thought to myself about how delightful it was that the days were getting longer, bringing us another warm summer. We had already made plenty of plans for the summer vacation that was coming up in just a few months, 
and despite it still being March, Evangeline was already starting to plan Hope's seventh birthday. She was always so thorough when it came to Hope. Nothing could ever be half-assed when it came to her baby, who was growing up way faster than I knew Evangeline was comfortable with. It wasn't as I stood there thinking to myself in the morning that it all happened. No, I managed to go through most of my day without any major changes. It was when I made my way to the metro that things started to shift. It was when I had found a comfortable seat to wait out the commute that it dawned on me. Looking at the people sitting around me, it didn't all just blend together like it used to. Instead, the figures on the train didn't appear to have any faces at all. It didn't come off blurry or incomprehensible. It just looked as if someone had smoothed out all the features on their faces, a layer of skin simply placed over their skull. They moved and acted like normal people, but the skin-covered faces made me shudder with unease. I got off at the next station, not caring that I would have to walk a good 30 minutes home. I convinced myself that it would give me time to shake off the unpleasant experience I had had on the train. I planned to talk to my wife about what I'd seen, possibly booking an appointment with a psychiatrist to test if my face blindness had gotten worse all of a sudden, despite the lack of science or build-up to such an extreme case. I wasn't going to freak out prematurely. I was assured that there must be some kind of logical explanation somewhere, and normally that explanation would come from Evangeline, who seemed to always know just what to say. I arrived at home feeling safer now that I had managed to make it inside the familiar walls of my house. I could hear my wife humming in the kitchen, and the smell of dinner hit my nose as I entered. She didn't appear to have noticed my arrival, so I took advantage of that and moved up behind her, wrapping my arms safely around her, pulling her body tightly against my chest, taking in the comforting scent of Evangeline. Her lavender perfume slowed my heart's rhythm down to a natural pace. She chuckled and I could feel the vibrations against my chest. We rocked softly back and forth until she turned to face me. I didn't know whether to cry or, or scream. Her face, the shapes I'd grown accustomed to, had vanished. All that was left was the smooth skin. There was no indents or bumps that showed any sign that there had ever been features on her face, just a blank canvas of skin. I backed away quickly, which seems to take her off guard. The skin stretched and pulled where there had once been a mouth as she spoke. What's the matter, honey? I was still feeling rather alarmed and inhaled sharply before I explained it to her. No matter how freaked out I was about the whole situation, I just wanted to tell my wife, as if it would magically make this all go away. Part of me hoped that by the end of my tale, her face would once again be staring back at me. But that was nothing but a fleeting wish, for even as I finished my story, it was the same skin that looked back at me. She moved her hand up to brush some hair out of her now absent face. Something struck me at that moment as I stared at the naked skin of her wrist. It was one of those details many wouldn't have paid much mind to, but to me, it was crystal clear. Her bracelet wasn't on her wrist, and, and neither was it on the opposite one when I looked down to check. Evangeline had gotten that bracelet back when we first met to help me find her should I get lost in a sea of people. 
she always wore the neon green bracelet with pride, not even taking it off when she showered. However, her wrist was bare. I asked her about it, of course. Even though I couldn't see the features of her face, she made a movement like looking down at her wrist. Oh yeah, it must have fallen off when I got home. I'll try to find it after dinner, she said, in a tone calmer than I was comfortable with. I didn't get to ponder upon it for long before she asked me if I had taken the wood from the basement, since the selection by the fireplace had started to look a little sad. I remember her mentioning that to me a few days before, so naturally I excused myself, making my way toward the basement stairs. It wasn't often I found myself in the basement, truth be told, the place rather creeped me out. But I found it as good a place as any to store all those things that you just don't know what to do with. All the stuff had been neatly put in boxes and towered up against the walls. My wife has placed the wood down here to avoid it getting soggy in the early fog. Well, I actually would assume she put it here after the summer had passed, but it was just to explain why it had still been stored down there. I fumbled for the light switch as I entered, the sudden darkness taking me by surprise. My hand made contact with it after what must have been more than a minute, and I switched it on, only just managing to keep down a scream. There on the floor was my wife and daughter, sprawled out like messed up rag dolls. Their hair had been crudely cut, their faces beat up into almost unrecognition. The blood had painted a section of the floor a sickly crimson red. Upon their wrists were the matching neon green bracelets. I broke down crying, not having it in me to touch their corpses. You might wonder how I knew they were dead. Well, I left out the most sickening detail. Beside them, on the floor, played their organs. I know there was no hope they would still be alive. It seemed like they had been down here since the morning, judging by the white skin. Honey. The call from the kitchen was what brought me back into reality. That's when I remembered the woman who claimed to be my wife, whose wrist was bare, unlike the woman who lay dead before me. I came to the conclusion that I must be next on their list. I didn't think that they could have known my condition and take advantage of me. No, I somehow just knew within myself that they wanted to kill me, and I was going to strike first. I grabbed the closest thing to me, which, to my misfortune, turned out to be an axe. Back then, I probably saw it as a nice little coincidence or some sick destiny telling me to go right ahead with what had struck my mind. They were sitting by the dining table food laid out before them. The woman who pretended to be my wife was helping the thing that pretended to be my daughter cut up her food, not a clue about the storm that was about to hit them. The child screamed as I came up behind Evangeline, axe raised. She turned around to face me, but it was already too late. There was nothing she could do but stare as the first blow went to her stomach. I don't think I have it in me to explain what I did to them especially not what happened to my innocent daughter. Oh, my little hope. As the bodies lay still on the floor, police knocked down my door, screaming at me to put down my weapon, guns raised. I let the axe fall to the floor. They cuffed me before I could make another move. 
I told them they were making a mistake, that I was only acting in self-defense as their blood dripped down my clothes. They didn't believe me, of course. I was towering over the dead body of a six-year-old child when they arrived, the bloody axe still resting in my hand. I told them about the bodies in the basement. Turns out there wasn't any down there to begin with. Not even a single drop of blood was spilt there. I've never had my heart race faster than when they told me that. There was no bodies in the basement. Just old, unwanted memories that would forever be empty without the people I shared them with. I pleaded guilty. They didn't even let me go to jail, despite the fact that I had pleaded guilty. They got their hands on my medical journal, and my lawyer made the idiotic decision to have me declared legally insane. And in my moment of weakness, I agreed. She thought it would be a relief, but this place is way worse than any prison. There is knocking in my pipes, and people won't stop screaming. I managed to get my hands on the police report from Frank Magison's case. He was arrested, as mentioned, on the 1st of March 2018 at 18.47 o'clock. Frank was found over the mangled remains of his six-year-old daughter, Hope. Behind him was her mother, Evangeline Magison, who had also suffered a brutal death. The next bit here might get graphic, as I found the description of how the two victims had been killed. The weapon used to commit the murders was an axe. The first blow had been to the mother, who had suffered a slash in her stomach going horizontally. Gashes on her hands indicate that she must have tried to defend herself, but she was not long after knocked unconscious by a blow to the head with the blunt side of the axe, which shattered her nose and part of her skull. The daughter was knocked unconscious using the same method a few meters away from her mother which indicates she must have made a run for her life. Both mother and child had multiple wounds to their stomachs and chest. They're presumed to have passed away shortly after falling unconscious. Their faces had been kicked, hair chopped off by what is assumed to be attempted blows with the axe, and both their faces had been left beyond recognition. The blows to the stomach had made both their intestines fall out of their bodies. It seems that Frank received two life sentences, but due to his lawyer's pleading insanity, Frank instead has been sent to serve out his sentence in a ward for the criminally insane, with no chance of parole. As I just read the encounter as stated by Frank himself, one thing does jump out at me. If you compare the two descriptions of the dead bodies, both the ones Frank claimed to have seen in the basement and the ones found at the crime scene, they both appear to share the exact same injuries and state. How was Frank able to foresee this, or did he simply write it down afterwards as some sort of sick joke? I can't shake off the feeling that something about this isn't quite right. I'll talk to Cairo about possibly getting the photos that must have accompanied this police file, despite the absolute certainty that my stomach will not be able to handle it. But what is a little discomfort for a job well done? Until further investigation is conducted on the matter, I am inclined to agree with the assessment that Mr. Magazine suffered a mental breakdown on the 1st of March, which in some way must have correlated with his face blindness and caused him to have severe hallucination. I will, despite my displeasure, take a quick visit to the criminally insane ward. 
and tried to find Cairo to ask about both the photos and why he insisted I read this particular session. Circe's is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. Today's episode featured Alexander Pauna as Elias Short. Audio edited by Henry Johannesson and El Sari. Manuscript edited by Rita Bauna and Kim Havelon. And written by Alexander F. Bauna. If you like what we do and want to support this podcast going forward, you can share this podcast with your friends or loved ones or donate whatever you feel comfortable with over on our coffee. Do you want to get to know us more? Follow us on social media or join our Discord. All the links are down below. Thank you for listening. <laughs>